the uh, as we we're, as we're studying, I was thinking about the evening and everything that's going on, and I found it ironic that we were dealing with a passage on fasting on Halloween, and uh, when most people in America don't. Uh, so I found, I happened to do some little research, had a friend who uh, is really into this type of stuff, and he sent me some questions, so I have some questions for you, see how you do. Uh, well, there's your answer, you got that. Uh, what percent of adults admit to sneaking candy from their kid's Halloween bowl? Supposedly, it's only 40%. I think the other 60% are lying, but, you know, it's... So, so 40% say that they, they do that. Um, how much money is going to be spent this year on Halloween candy? Two million, five million, two billion, seven billion. Yeah, estimations are two billion dollars. There'll be seven billion dollars spent just on the Halloween uh, episode in and of itself, but two billion in candy alone. How many pounds of candy will be purchased this year for, uh, uh, not purchased, excuse me. Uh, yeah, how many pounds of candy will be purchased for Halloween this year? The equivalent to six Titanic ships, the same weight as the Empire State Building, or the same weight as five 747 jumbo jets? Any guesses? They don't all weigh the same. That's, I knew someone was going to ask, answer that. Uh, it's the same weight as six Titanic ships. It's like 600 million pounds of candy will be, uh, will be done. Which of these is false? Kids are going to consume an average between 5,000 and 7,000 calories on Halloween. The average trick-or-treater consumes about three cups of sugar. Or kids would need to trick-or-treat 180 miles or 60 hours to burn off what they eat. Hey, Lou, the answer, it's what you were going at last time. Now it's this time. None of them are false. That's actually the general statistic for everything that's going to happen. That's, what, that's the amount that we consume on Halloween uh, just in these couple days here on that day. <clears throat> it's a little, little depressing, a little overwhelming. And so now that we've talked about uh, the candy, let's talk about fasting. Okay, let's talk about what we're not going to probably do in the next day or so. But looking and saying... What does the Bible teach, and especially in regard to Mark chapter 2, what is Jesus driving at in regard to the idea of fasting and feasting? When we, when we look at the Gospel of Mark and we look at the ideas of fasting in the first century, uh, there's, some, there's some interesting dynamics. One of the things I was surprised, I just don't know, never noticed it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is the only commanded feast in the Old Testament. There are no other commanded feasts like the, the Jews had to do as per, as per the law. Leviticus chapter 16 talks about that. There were other voluntary fasts, actually feasts, uh, that were connected with solemn prayer, heartbrokenness. And so David, uh, in Second uh, Samuel 12, when he is uh, talking about his son is dying, he's going to go into a voluntary fast. The nation, or the Jews uh, in Esther, where before she's going to go in before the king, there's going to be a voluntary fasting. And so there were times where the individuals would fast on a voluntary nature and that they would, they would say, because of my brokenheartedness or something that the Lord has gripped my heart with, I'm going to dedicate some time to, to, to fasting. The uh, fasting traditions or the proper observances of fast 
were clarified in what was called the Mishnah Ta'anait. It's, uh, it was to, it was a Mishnah is, and we'll talk about this in a couple weeks here. It was, it's, it's the Torah, and then there's basically commentary on the Torah, and there's commentary on the commentary, and that's what the, the Mishnahs were. Uh, and so they were, the, the Pharisees or the Jewish religious leaders working through, wrestling through what is, what is supposed to happen, what is the practical outworkings and, and how we go about this. So they would talk about, there were other, there were other types of fasts. There was for lamenting over national tragedies. They would talk about when Nebuchadnezzar came in and took, took over the temple, that there was to be a fasting and that there was a time for that because of the, the, the lamentation over it. Fasting in times of crisis, during wars, during difficult times, during one of the people wrote about famines. I'm like, well, you sort of are fasting during a famine, but with the intended purpose of prayer and dedication uh, to that time with God. There were these self-imposed fasts, and that's what, the, what David said in, um, in 2 Samuel 12. He, uh, the psalmist David talks about in Psalm 35 where he's going to go and he's going to fast and spend time be, before the Lord. By the time the first century comes around, the traditions of adding fasting twice a week uh, was, was added in. In fact, in Euro Matthew 6, Luke 18 talks about, if you remember the, the publican and the sinner, uh, and the publican is going to, or the Pharisee is going to stand up and he's going to say, I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess, and he's standing there, and he's, he's uh, making it very well known that he is taking the time to fast. But the, the common practice among especially the religious elite or the very devout Jewish individual would be to fast on a Monday and a Thursday. Now, the Day of Atonement was a 24-hour fast, whereas this fast was a, was a 12-hour fast, typically from 6 in the morning till 6 at night. You could eat before, you could eat afterwards, but during that time period, you would, you would not fast. In Matthew 6, Jesus gives us a little bit more of the, the insight into some of the heartbeat, some of what was happening. He says, Moreover, when you fast, don't be as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their face, that they may appear to men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. So, so he gives this idea that um, this was an ostentatious, a showy fasting. Hey, look at me. This is what I'm doing so that everybody notices and knows what I'm doing. What would, what would they do? You know, obviously they talk about that he would, they would uh, make sure that they would disfigure their face or they would um, make themselves look sad. Some of the, some of the writers back in the, the days talk about that they would, they would uh, whiten their face, that some of them would actually wear makeup on their eyes to make them look more sunken in. Uh, they would dishevel their hair. They would wear more tattered clothing that day. Just so as they walked around, everybody who they would walk around and notice would know this individual was fasting. They were doing it for a purpose, for the, the, the show uh, that was taking place. Uh, was, Paul talks about Galatians chapter 6, verse 12, talks about that they do it for, a, uh, for the flesh, the, the open display of the flesh that people will know what they're doing for, for that intended purpose. And so it was for that phony self-righteousness so that people would notice what they did, and they took, they took great pride in it. What was the result that, that takes place there? That it, Jesus says they have their reward. They're getting it from man. They're getting what they're desiring. They're getting what they want, but they're not getting what God desired to give them. And he says, how should we come? He says in the verses, when you're going to fast, if you're going to take that time to do that, but when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, 
Do, do the normal things. Make yourself look, look normal. So that when you appear to men, you don't appear like you're fasting. You go about your everyday. You, you go with that intended purpose of saying, I am going to just, I'm going to participate in a fast, but I'm not going to make sure everybody knows. He really drives it. It's, there's a heart issue. Whether I'm doing things in my life for, for man's applause, or am I doing it because this is what I need to be doing in a brokenhearted sense to God. And if I'm working and working things out, working them with God. As I was, as I was thinking about it, I had to ask myself, are there times that, though I, never, I don't participate in Halloween tonight dressing up or anything, but are there times that I dress up just to come to church in the sense of I put on my self-righteousness so that you, you can make sure you see the good art? Because that's what I want you to see. Or are there times that I have to look and say, I need to get on my face before God and say, well, is my heart, my, my outside may look good, but does my heart, is my heart really reflecting what I would desire with Jesus Christ? So how should we come clean up, look normal? He says, really, just he has a, have a good heart issue when you, when you go about fasting or when you're going into the, the process of fasting. Now, fasting in the first century had become basically a prerequisite to religious commitment. It was a sign of atonement. It was a visible humiliation, a form of, of showing penitence towards God, that they would walk around. They wanted people to know this. And do we do, we do some of the same? Do we, have, do we have our prerequisite checklists? That if we as believers, if we do this and this and this, if we look like this, this, and this, then we must be obviously right before God. Or do we act a certain way when we're here because we want believers to know that we're really good believers. But maybe when we're at home with our family or when we're with the coworkers, we're acting a, a different way. But we, we don't want others in our circles to know how we really act. So we have these, these artificial checklists sometimes. Sometimes we look and we say, well, it's how, it's how I dress. Or we say, it's, it's what version of the Bible do I use? So that's, that becomes the checklist. You know, how, I, how many services did I attend? We look around tonight and say, hmm, I'm here tonight. I thought Halloween was important enough to skip and to make my dedication known to God. But the people who are not here, obviously, they must not be right with God. And we can, we can do some of those same, have some of those same heart attitudes that even the, even the Pharisees display in their fasting, thinking that they are better than someone else because we, we generate different checklists in our, in our mind. And so as, as they talk about the fasting in the first century, it was regarded as part and parcel to true piety. When, it, when the, the Jewish individuals, the Pharisees, the Pharisees of John, as we're going to see here, there's going to cause some conflict because true piety was demonstrated by whether or not you were fasting. In, in the, the Judaism, you were basically some of the pillars, you know, your, your almsgiving, your prayer, your fasting. And so if you weren't fasting, there was, there was a problem with your piety. So there was this, Matthew Henry said, empty ritual is the enemy of true godliness. That was a really interesting quote. I don't often read Matthew Henry, but for some reason I decided to read him on this passage. And that just, that quote stuck with me that here are these individuals who are coming with this empty ritual. They just do because that's what they're expected to do by their religious organization or their entity. But it's the enemy of true godliness. We need to look and say, why do we do what we do? Are we doing it out of a heart of devotion and love uh, for God? The Pharisees had made their practices, especially the practice of fasting, one of them, but their practices as a whole as a standard. And they, they would censure all who would not 
fully come up to that. And that's going to cause a problem because they're looking and saying, why don't your disciples do this? Jesus, why did your disciples do this? Jesus, why are you doing that? And there's this conflict all the way through Mark 2, all the way through chapter 3, verse 6. There's an escalation. There's five different episodes. And each time it's escalating from you have the authority to, to forgive sins all the way to breaking on the laws on the Sabbath, healing a man on the Sabbath. And every time it's dealing with the traditions and the things that the Pharisees have set up as a standard. And Jesus is going against some of those things, and he's doing things uh, as he would see. So the fasting traditions here that were common in the first century, and we're not, we're not looking at all the different practical of how to fast or what to do, but just getting a general idea, this fasting tradition and custom drives Mark chapter 2. So if, you're, if you were in Matthew, let's jump over to Mark chapter 2. And if you're in Mark chapter 2, great, you're there already. And let's look at what, what is driving this. As I mentioned, there's this escalation that's, a, that's, that's occurring through Mark 2 from verse 1, from when he has the authority to, to forgive sins, dealing with healing the, the paralytic, and, and moving forward. So now we're in this, this third episode after dealing with Matthew and the tax collectors and eating with publicans and sinners. Now we're, now we're into this, this area here where you see in verse 18... We, we get to first the criticism, which is going to be couched in the form of a question, and questions drive uh, this section of the Gospel of Mark. You'll notice there's questions and there's answers, and there's questions and there's answers. Verse 18, the disciples of John, and, and don't miss that, we'll talk about that in a second, and the disciples, in front of the Pharisees, used to fast. And they came and said unto him, why do the disciples of John and the disciples of Pharisees fast, but your Pharisees, your disciples, excuse me, do not imply do not fast? So, so the question that arises is why are why are you not fasting? Now, notice the disciples. Um, it's it's not uh, disciples fasting is not a surprise. Okay, we expect that. You expect that in first century culture. What may be a surprise a little bit is that not all of John's disciples followed Jesus. Not at least initially, and we don't know that they all, all did, but we have, we have a group here that is identified with the Pharisees, whether they are following after the Pharisees or not. We know that even later on, as far as into Acts chapter 19, we get in Acts 19, there's still disciples of John who don't know about Jesus. So we can't just instantly assume that when John gets put in prison, all the disciples of John just instantly go over and follow the disciple and become a disciple of Jesus. There, is, there does seem to be a little bit here. Maybe part of the issue is that with that heightened excitement, that, that new dynamic of John saying the, the, the Messiah is coming, he's on his way, he's here, that they began to, to see some of the, the, the steepened or heightened Judaism. They started to follow even harder after Judaism, being more dedicated. And so maybe some of the disciples of John here are looking and saying, well, the Pharisees, they have a very good handle on what Judaism is and, and preparing and being ready. So they're following after and really trying to do it even better, earning and, and doing their best toward, toward that end. But these disciples find the conduct, both, both sets, the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees, and those, some of them in there, they define the, define the conduct of the disciples is outrageous. And, and it is inferred that if your disciples are doing it, then you as a rabbi, Jesus, or as a teacher, you're involved in it. You're, the, you're part of the problem as well. What is it that they find outrageous? It's that they were not fasting. What's interesting to me 
in this section is Matthew, Luke, and Mark. All of them put these last three little sections together back to back where they look and they're saying that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Matthew or Levi is going to be called as a tax collector or the seating with the sinners and eating with publicans and sinners and then followed up by this aspect of fasting and that the disciples are not fasting like this. So there's this, this, this uh, juxtaposition, the two opposites put next to each other where you have the feasting and you have the fasting and they're saying you ought to be doing what we do. You ought to be acting like we do. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. We see that. We see that the next little section here with Matthew, that even the most wretched of sinners is able to have their sins forgiven. Though they are going to look and say, this is a breach of inexplicable proportion that these, these Jewish, this Jewish leader Jesus and his followers would go sit with these sinners and eat and feast and enjoy that time and now they're going to look and say, why are you feasting with sinners when you should be fasting with the saints? This is what we do. This is how we act. And so why are you, Jesus, why are your disciples, why are they not fasting like we are? And that, that becomes the question that they ask. Why are you not fasting? What is going on? And so this breach of tradition, it's a breach of tradition and not of the law. And that's important to understand. Remember, the law commands one fast. The law did not command the two fasts a week. That was, that was a tradition that came down. That the, so they're not, they're not breaking a, a law from Torah. They are, they are, though, not following after the traditions of, of the Pharisees. But the insinuation here is that if you are to be taken seriously as a rabbi, Jesus, then you should follow, you should live up to the protocols that we have established in Judaism. What has been happening? I mean, you're talking 200 years now since basically the, when the Pharisees were established to the time when Jesus is around. They, they know what they know. They know how to, to run the system. They know how to, uh, to go through the processes. And so they're looking at Jesus, and Jesus is coming with this new dynamic. And that's the constant battle. They're like, he's speaking with this authority. He's saying this, and then he does that. But that's not what we've always done. But he's doing it with great authority. And he just healed that guy. But we wouldn't have done that because it was on the Sabbath. But, and, and they're constantly being bombarded with challenges of something new. Looking at traditions that they've always held to. And saying, wait, something, something's, something's different here. Something's, something's difficult. And so they, they go through this whole thing and say, you need, to, you need to, to, you and your disciples, you need to live up. If you're going to survive, if you're going to make an impact here and you want to be one of us or be part of us. And they're sort of vetting him, but they're, they're really trying to undermine and take him out because they don't like where he's going. As a, as a little side note, I, and just something that um, popped into my head when I was thinking about how the, the, the thought of these disciples... The, the statement, I think Pastor Tony has it in his office somewhere that I read one time, but the statement that comparison is the thief of joy. But that's what these guys were doing. They're like, we fast. Why are you not? And there's this comparison that happens. And I had to think, how many times do I, they should be joyful. They should be thankful that they are fasting and they have the opportunity and they can go before the Lord in their acts of service to him but their joy is robbed. 
because they're looking at others. They're looking at how little they're doing or how much they, the, the other people were doing. When we start to do that in our, in our spiritual lives, it can, it can cause great heartache, great frustration. We may begin to compare. Well, look at how many hours I serve the church. But what about these other people? They don't, and we, we can lose our joy because we act like these individuals, these Pharisees here, where we start saying, well, we fast, why don't you do this? And they, they lose that opportunity. We can look and say, well, we work so much harder than these other individuals. I put in more hours than so-and-so. And I can lose my joy because I begin to, to, to look at what they're doing or what they're not doing, and I begin to, to focus just on myself You know, look how long we pray for compared to them. You know, we're in here afterwards and we're going to have a prayer time. And some people, they just get up after five minutes, but I stay there for the good 15 or 20 minutes. I don't know what the problem with them is. And we can easily begin to compare ourselves and it's not wise. We we know that, you know, how we dress, what we give. We, We have to look and say, be careful on comparing our heart issues and our spiritual service and our activities toward the Lord because everybody has some different, different dynamics. But Jesus is going to, in this passage, we, we get this criticism that, that takes place, and Jesus is going to make it crystal clear. There's, there is a difference here. There is a distinction between what Jewish tradition and, and the Pharisaical Judaism of the day was happening and what I'm doing. And he's going to, he's going to make this, this difference very clear, but talk about the heart attitude that he desires is one that is foreign to the Pharisees. And Jesus is looking and saying, hey, with that idea of fasting, have the right heart. Have the, have the right heart. And so he uses this idea of a wedding feast. The wedding feast is a time for celebration and not a time for mourning. It is a time to rejoice. It is a time to be excited. And he, he looks at, the, he's going to say, let me give you an answer. I'll give you the answer in the form of an illustration. I'll tell you a story. There's a wedding. Now, I don't know about you, but even, even in the times when I've been on the strictest parts of my diet, I don't go to a wedding and go, I'm not going to eat anything. I'm fasting. Okay, anybody, how many of you fast through a wedding? Anybody really ever decide to fast through? You might eat one or two things and go, yeah, I probably should have fasted through that wedding. But it's a time of rejoicing. It's a time of celebration where, where you look and say, that's what we're going to do. We're going to rejoice. The feast during Bible times would typically last seven days. It would be extended. Now, the only, the only difference is the, if, if it's a remarriage, like a widow being remarried, then it was a three-day feast. But typically, it's a seven-day feast that's going on. You're not fasting during this time. Even the most devout had to stop their fast. That Mishnah Tanait, again, it talks about that the rabbis and the, the leaders were to stop their fasting in order to celebrate with the bridegroom that they were to rejoice. And Jesus looks and says here, he says, should the children of the bridegroom, the chamber, fast while the bridegroom is with them? The the children of the bride chamber were those who were there. They were sitting, they were waiting for the the bridegroom to come. They were the best man. They were the entourage that was going to come and be around with him. And so as they come into the wedding feast, they're not looking and saying, oh, woe is me. Let's just sit here. Now, I know sometimes at weddings, we're like, woe is me. Let me get out of here. I have a million other things to do. But that's a, it's a different culture. Look at that Jewish celebration feast, that excitement. So even the most devout were to break the fasts and get into the celebration and spend that time. And at the end of the feast, now this makes sense to a degree, 
the guests would leave. Now in our culture, we're all here and the bridegroom and the bride, bride they leave. They go, they go away. They, they make their exit. But typically you're already at the house. You're celebrating at the house of the bride or the, the bridegroom. And so you're there. The guests would leave. And so Jesus uses all of that little bit of culture to, to bring out some interesting dynamics in the, in the passage. So what is he teaching? He teaches very quickly. He says, hey, the bridegroom is here. The, the Messiah, the Messiah is present. Uh, in verse 19, he says, can they fast while the bridegroom is here? There's a, there's a veiled, veiled dynamic of uh, Jesus is making a claim to deity here. Because in the Old Testament, the term for bridegroom, it was only used of God. It wasn't used of the Messiah. It wasn't used of the one to come. But now you have in the New Testament, and we know the, the bridegroom is often used, the bride and his church, the bride and his church, or the bridegroom, excuse me, and, his, and the church. And so there's that aspect. So Jesus is, is using a reference where he's looking and saying, I'm the bridegroom. I am God. Because bridegroom was God in the Old Testament. So they knew their testament. So when he's making this statement, he is making a veiled declaration of deity saying, I am the bridegroom. I am God. And so he, he makes that, that statement there. And he's saying the bridegroom is here, there. But the Pharisees are so out of touch. They're so out of touch with what God is doing that they can't grasp the significance of who is standing right there with them. And if they would be able to do that, they would not be mourning. They would be celebrating. The bridegroom, he says, is going to be ripped away. In verse 20, it, it talks about, but there will come a time when the bridegroom shall be taken away. The, the word is to be ripped, sudden, violent, tearing away. Uh, it refers back even to Isaiah 53, verse 8, where it talks about that the servant of the Lord is going to be ripped, uh, ripped away. But he's going to be taken away. That's countercultural. That would have been an astonishing statement. Like, well, wait a second. The bridegroom doesn't get ripped away. The, 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 the guests leave. The bridegroom stays at home. But it's, it's almost like that. I'm not, if, if someone in your family has done it, so be it. I'm not a fan of this cultural phenomenon that has taken place in the last couple of years at weddings where people come in and, all right, let's steal the groom or steal the bride away. And then we pass the hat and we have to raise so much money before we're going to bring them back. And uh, it's just, it, it makes no sense. It's like, everybody's already giving you gifts anyways. Quit begging for more money. But we look at that and a lot of people find it abhorrent. Like, why would you do that at a wedding? But that's what they're looking at. They're saying, wait, why would the bridegroom be snatched away? What, what is happening here? And Jesus is, he's going to, he's going to talk about here that there is an aspect where the bridegroom, the one who is going to be with them now, is going to be taken away. It's the first, first declaration in the Gospel of Mark foreshadowing that this bridegroom, that Jesus is going to be put to death, that he is going to be taken away. And though they don't catch it at first, eventually the, the disciples will understand that, that he's going. He also says that the fasting is appropriate. He's not looking and saying fasting is an inappropriate aspect. Fasting is something that should be put away with. He says fasting is appropriate because notice what he says. But the day will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them and then they shall fast. The conditions, the heart attitude will be correct and appropriate for fasting at that time. The, the, the disciples will be in such a way where they're the crisis, the tragedy, the self-imposed necessity of 
going before the Lord and, and forsaking food and saying, I don't even feel like eating, Lord. I just need to come to you. He says, there, there is going to be that time. So Jesus is not looking at these individuals and saying, I want nothing to do with aspects of, of the law, the Torah, the, the fasting, and the appropriateness that comes with it. But he says there's an internal, an internal reality that they need to have their heart right. It's not just to show, but it's, it's a fasting because your heart has been gripped with something. What's our hearts been gripped with that would drive us to the point of fasting? Has there been anything? Do we look at the salvation of souls maybe and say, I need to fast. I need to give up a meal so I can pray for missionaries. I need to give up a time of eating, maybe for an extended period of time so that we can pray specifically for my kids or for a difficulty that's happening, a medical situation in our family. Do we get to the point where we're so willing to take something we find so precious as food and set it aside in order to pray, in order to do what Jesus says is appropriate? It's interesting to me, John MacArthur pointed it out in one of, the, one of his writings. He said, you look at the times when Jesus comes back after he's put to death, Luke 24, he's on the road to Emmaus. It says he's walking down with these individuals and they're talking and they're going through. And it says that they go to the individual's houses, to, to their house, not to Jesus's house. They go to this person's house and they sit down and it says that he said that Jesus is actually the one who takes the bread, breaks it and initiates the concept of eating again. So it almost infers and implies that these individuals weren't eating and they weren't planning to eat. But Jesus initiated it when they're back on the, the shores and he's, he initiates the eating of the bread. And he just, he just said, he's like, I can't make a, a doctrine out of it. But he said, it does seem like the grief, the heartache, the difficulty that they went through in, in the passing of Jesus initiated some aspects of wanting to, to fast with them. He says, but all, in all of that, when the bridegroom's here, it's a time for feasting. It's not a time for fasting. And that's why we don't do it. That's his answer to the question. Why don't you fast like we do? Because the bridegroom's here. Because when the bridegroom is here, it's a time for feasting and it's not a time for fasting. That's why they're not, they're not doing it. And so he, he gives them that answer. And the disciples of John and the Pharisees are so caught up in their external religious tradition, going through the motions, doing everything, but they don't have this inward... Um, Reality, this transformation that's taken place. They're not seeing Jesus for who he is. And it's, it's, it, it's obvious. Um, the question I asked myself, is it obvious when I was thinking about it? Is it obvious that I've been internally transformed and I'm not merely externally conformed? Do I just do what I'm doing so that you look and say, oh yeah, he's a good pastor. Or do I look and say, I do what I do because this is what God desires of me. Because he has changed my life and out of that love that I have for him, I want to give back for him. Not just to do things so that people around me will applaud or say, yep, there's a, there's a good little Christian boy. But to look and to say, this is why I do it because this is who God is. Now he gives a clarification. He's going to take some time and he's going to clarify, clarify some truth here. He's going he's gonna to tie in verse 21 and 22. He's going to give us two analogies. And he's going to talk about an old cloth with a new patch and old, old skins with new wine. Now, what they would do is they would take for the, the old skins. This is an, a, a goat skin. 
And they would take the goat skin, and when it was still fresh and supple and it was there, they would pour in the new wine and they would tie it up. And they would use that to, to make the wine. And they would use it as the, as the wine would ferment, as the dregs would come out. They would take the dregs out, use it for vinegar. But that would happen, the expansion and the contraction that would happen, the fresh, the new skins would not burst. But after you use the skins, they would become stiff and brittle and they weren't good. If you put new wine, new wine into those skins they would eventually burst. The same thing's true. You, those of you who sewed or you've used natural fibers, a wool or a cotton, something that's going to, to shrink when you wash it. You don't put on something that's already been shrunk, you don't put a brand new patch that's not been shrunk on that because when that patch shrinks and goes through the wash, it's going to tear it away. Those are the illustrations Jesus uses. He says, no man sews a new piece of cloth, piece of cloth on an old garment, else the piece that is filled up takes away from the old, and the rent, the tear, is made worse. And no one putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine doth burst the bottles, and the wine is spilled, and the bottles will be marred. But new wine must be put into new bottles. So he talks about what is old and what is new. And and in the context of what he's talking about, the traditional Pharisaical Judaism this, this is the thing that is old. He's looking at Judaism and he's saying, this is old. The new is Jesus Christ, the gospel. As he's coming forward, he's like, this is something new. It is different. And it's not the two going together. He's not looking and saying, well, you're right, Pharisees. I need to do a lot like you plus what I'm going to do. And if we bring the two together, then we can live in happy harmony. He's not looking and saying the two are to coexist and come together. But rather, he's, he's looking and saying, we need to look at this. Both analogies here deal with the idea of finality, the pulling away, the bursting. And it causes something that was once serviceable, it causes it to be destroyed and no longer worthwhile. So he's looking and saying, this, this, the old system is going to be replaced. It is going, Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law. He replaces and he puts it in a finality way. He looks and he says, Jesus is not an appendage. He's not an addition to Judaism. He's a fulfillment of it. He completes it. He is the Messiah. But he is not, it is not Judaism plus Jesus. And that's what he's starting to drive through and get through. Is like it's not the two. They have to go on a call. They, I didn't offend them. Okay? Everybody's like, <gasps> Okay? <laughs> Um, but they, they look at it's not an appendage of the two. And so we have to look and say, when we, when we look at what Jesus is saying, the Judaism plus Jesus is not what he's saying. Jesus is saying, I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the, the only one. And he's becoming very direct, very succinct in, in what he is saying here. He's looking at these individuals and saying, don't try and add me. Make me your soul authority. You follow me. The, the, the disciples are going to have to wrestle with that. Are they going to follow Jesus? Or are they going to go back to following the pressure that they're getting from the religious system of the Jews? The, the, the disciples of John, are they going to keep going after the ways of the Pharisee? Or are they going to look at Jesus and say, no, I need to follow after him and, and do those things? And, and so as we look at, we look at it all, there, there is a dynamic where are they going to hold on to the old 
or are they going to embrace the new? If you go over real quick to Luke 5, Luke 5 and verse number 39, it is Luke adds just a little bit more to the account that Mark does not. But I think it's very interesting what he, what he brings out. And it's always just those different dynamics and different perspectives that the gospel writers bring out. Um, in Luke 5, uh, down in verse 39, he talks about the, the no, no one, verse 37, no one puts the wineskins, the same thing. But verse 39, he says, No man having drunk old wine straightway desires new wine, for he says the old is better. Which when I'm reading through, I'm like, okay, wait. We're always told the new wine and the old wine. What's he, he's, not, he's not getting into a discussion on alcohol in the Bible right here. It's not is, which wine is better. He's looking and saying that these individuals who are holding on to their old traditions, when they see something, when they're tasting something new, they naturally are not just going to jump at it. They're going to gravitate. They like the taste of their old ways. They like the taste of their traditions, of what, they, what they're holding on to. And they look at the new and they're like, I don't know. I'm not sure. And so they're fighting and, and these individuals are fighting. Do they follow Jesus? The disciples are going to really have to wrestle with, am I going to put my heart and soul and mind into it? All of this to me has some interesting, profound application. And we're just going to fly through it, but I just want you to think about it. Jesus is looking and he's, he's not trying to tear down the idea of fasting or promote the idea of fasting in this passage, although he does say it's appropriate. But what he is looking at is the battle of integrating, synchronizing a world system that, or a religious system and Jesus Christ, trying to smash the two together. And, and does that work? And Jesus is saying, no. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The gospel is unique. It is exclusive. It is unmixable. It is incompatible with any other religious system. We cannot look and say it is the gospel plus something else. It is simply the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can't look and say, how do, we, how do we smash it together? How do we mix it? Some things do not be mixed, should not be mixed. The gospel is the gospel. It is not the gospel plus. That's the book of Galatians. The Judaizers were looking and saying, it's the gospel plus these old Jewish ways. They were trying to smash it to, back together. The gospel cannot coexist with any other system. Whether Christian... Whether it could be under that big umbrella of Christian, but it's a works-based religion like Catholicism. You can't look and say, well, Catholicism and us, and you know, we're going to walk on the same, different paths, but we'll end up in the same place. That is not compatible with the gospel. They cannot coexist together. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, it, it, yes, they fall under this big umbrella of Christian but they are not Christian. It is not taking their system and our system and everything works out and everything's hunky-dory. It does not work. And we cannot, we cannot look and say, let's just equivocate on this. Let's move. If they're non-Christian, they're atheistic, even Judaism. And if Judaism is the case where Jesus is looking and saying, here's Judaism in the Old Testament, it's steeped in in, gospel, in, in, in the Word of God, in Torah, it is coming out, and there's such a close relationship. But 
it looks and says it is not the same. And we can't look and say it is the same and we just come together and, and make it happy. They cannot, the gospel cannot coexist with any other religious system. The gospel, we live in a society that exalts diversity. That we have this belief of inclusivity. Everything's good. Everybody's opinion's good. Everybody's religious beliefs are good. And we are okay with that. But all religious systems do not have equal merit. You are sharing the gospel with a friend. You're talking to them. And you can't look and say, well, you know, that's good. I'm really glad you enjoy that. And there's probably some really good merit in what you do. You have to be careful on some of that. There's, there's not an equal merit in the systems. The gospel and biblical Christianity are very clear. There is one God. There is one Lord. There is one word. There is one way. It's not looking and saying, well, there's multiple interpretations and we'll sort of all figure it out in the end. That is being promoted. That is being shoved down our throats. But if we truly believe in a solid one biblical interpretation of the word of God and understanding it, we can't, we can't change. So we must defend the singularity, and the purity of the gospel. It is distinct from any other. And we must hold to that. We cannot, as Bible-believing Christians, we cannot equivocate. We can't move. We can't waffle on that. We don't just add Jesus. And if you're sharing the gospel, it's not just, oh, well, just, you know, it's not another notch you put on your belt or another statue you put on your shoulder, your, your mantle. You know, I pray to this God and this God and this God and to the unknown God, just in case. It is very clear that we do not, we do not do that. Jesus held a view that was very different from that of the Pharisees. It, it, it was traumatic. In fact, it got to the point that the leaders believed that he was demonic, that he was being controlled by Beelzebub, which we'll get to. They were looking and saying that he is somebody who is casting out in the name of Satan. And they looked, they believed that he was demonic and that he, they had not a place with Judaism, that his ways, the Jewish leaders at the time looked and said, Jesus has no place with us. They got it. They said they're, they're, they're not something we want to smash together. They did not want to bring Jesus into the fold. And so we have to look and say, there are going to be times when we are going to have to be exclusive. We are going to have to be distinct with the gospel and stand firm. And we will take flack for it. We will be called intolerant. We will be called narrow-minded. But the gospel, we can't, we can't change on that. We cannot equivocate on the incompatibility of the gospel. The gospel is the gospel. And Jesus looks and says through this this whole passage here, it is distinct. It was something new for them. Maybe not new for us, but for other people, it's new. We want to share that with them. We want to share the truth. And we want to see them grasp it. to, To let go of the old and embrace the new. To let go of their old tastes and embrace the newness of Jesus Christ in the gospel. So as we look at this and then we, we go into next week, we'll start looking at some of the Sabbath controversies and how it all continues to escalate. But let's look and say, hey, as we share the gospel, as we pray for the gospel, as we take time here for the next few minutes, praying for the gospel of Jesus Christ, praying for people to get saved, 
Let's really focus in on making sure our heart is right and that we're coming before the, the Lord thankful for the gospel.